This is The Storied Outdoors, a podcast somewhere between Lewis and Tolkien and Lewis and Clark, finding clarity in the stories we tell and the adventures that shape us. This essay is entitled Persistence on the Tekoa River, written by Dr. Brian Gill and read for you by Brad Hill. It's dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. J.R.R. Tolkien It was two weeks after the country had begun to slowly reopen during the pandemic of 2020. The four of us, Brad, Josh, Hamilton, and myself, were desperate to get away for a weekend of fly fishing and what had become known as social distancing, a new phrase brought about by the powers that be during the COVID-19 fiasco. Each of us were unsure of its severity, but willing to do our part to protect those at high risk. And doing our part at the moment meant trekking to the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Georgia for a weekend of fly fishing. When we arrived, the tailwaters were high as the TVA, thanks to President Roosevelt's initiative in the late 1930s, was dumping water. The extremely wet winter we'd had that year caused the 3,300-acre Lake Blue Ridge to need a near-constant release. When we reached the water's edge, we immediately knew wading was out of the question. We fished in vain from the banks and managed to not lose any flies in the high grass and the curtain of budding trees along the banks. Josh and Hamilton had never fly-fished before. I felt like it was it was important to, to uh, use that first afternoon to teach them how to perform a, a simple roll cast and the, the meaning of ten and two. Hamilton is quite possibly the most optimistic human alive and a friend whom I would go to war with. You'll hear more about Hamilton in a future episode at the end of this season. Being a, a former college linebacker, now pharmacist outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, he is a natural athlete. His only problem would be not jerking the lips off these tender trout. <laughs> From my own experience on the water, lipless fish only bite once, and rarely do you get them in the boat. Once he mastered the speed and timing of his back cast and the follow-through, he was ready for the water, and he took to it well. Now Josh, uh, a fun-loving friend and deacon from my church uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, had about as much experience fishing as I'd had fishing the tailwaters of the Tekoa, and this was my first trip on the tailwaters of the Tekoa. He was in desperate need, though, of a getaway, and he jumped at the opportunity to join us. He eventually got the hang of roll casting and the timing of a simple forward cast. However, he was just as content to be the comic relief of the group, and he was, he was a pro at that role. Brad needed no instruction as to how to cast a fly. While I was the more experienced uh, than him fishing for trout, he had the more experience with a fly rod and reel. He'd been fly fishing in the backwaters of Alabama's Gulf Coast for over 20 years, but had recently succumbed to his affinity for trout fishing, and the transition was seamless. 
For Brad, this trip was once again an opportunity to heal a broken heart. Just a week earlier, one of the elders and co-ministers at his church had passed away after a long bout with cancer. Due to COVID-19, those close to him had not been able to visit, and therefore the death came, came too soon, without any chance to say a proper goodbye. Waving at a stale window and praying from an empty driveway was, was no way to say a final goodbye to a dear friend. In some way, I believe this trip was Brad's chance to once again let God heal him with the rushing waters of trout streams. The same way he and I did a year earlier on the Elk River in Tennessee a couple of weeks after his father passed away. My heart was anxious as well but for another reason. After three years, I'd finally finished writing my second novel. The first one I had finished, or so I thought, about ten years ago. However, it had not been published, and I was technically still editing it ten years later. Peter Devries once said, Write drunk and edit sober. (laughs) Although Hemingway had been credited for uttering those words for decades, it wasn't him. Part of me... Part of me wished it had been, but that's just my love for Hemingway rearing its head. Nevertheless, I must have been on a three-year bender when I wrote the first, second, and third drafts of the first novel because it's taken me so long to edit the hundred thousand words. Editing was a task that uh, never ended for me. There was always something that needed to be changed, something that needed to be tweaked. There was always a scene that could be better and a stronger verb that could be chosen. I had not yet reached the point in my first novel where scenes that needed editing didn't keep me awake at night. I always know when a scene is poorly written when it keeps me up at night. I feel the characters sort of judging my writing and rolling their eyes at me behind the pages when something's not quite right. Sometimes it's a single word. Sometimes it's a a single page. And sometimes it's a complete storyline all of whom are darlings on the firing line, or at least tucked away in an idea drawer for for a different book. But my second novel was to that point, the point at which I felt editing was was complete. And two weeks earlier, I had submitted a 14-page proposal to an agent. The agent was one that I had connections to through a few writer friends. I felt like, it, it felt like a solid connection, and the proposal was, was praised by my writing mentor. But two weeks later, I had not heard back from the agent. I assumed this meant he was busy, but deep down, it also felt like bad news was looming like a distant thundercloud. He told me to reach out to him if I hadn't heard back from him in two weeks. I had decided to wait until the Monday after we had returned from fishing to contact him, and that's what I did. The submission of the proposal was a big deal for me, bigger bigger than it should have been. In the past, I have always felt that fear was why I didn't submit my writing for publication. However, at Hutchmoot in 2019, S.D. Smith, author of the Green Ember series of children's books about rabbits with swords, looked at me in the eyes and said the reason I hadn't submitted anything was because of my pride. Those were strong words, and they hit me deep to my core. 
I didn't want to admit that he was right. And I pled that it was fear and humility holding me back. He said, my fear is a result of my pride, not humility. Although only a few years older than me, his words of wisdom struck home as he followed his premise with the qualifier. If God gave you the story and you're not letting people read it, your pride is getting in the way. It's getting in the way of his work. Ouch. Okay, Sam, I'll write the dang proposal. So, I did. And now, I waited. The next day, we met Reese and Brad, the guides for Appalachian anglers at around 11.30 to start our day of floating and fishing. We drove to a place along the river that we, uh, they would put us about uh, 45 minutes ahead of the other anglers and unbeknownst to us, hundreds of kayakers that would put in at the dam once they turned the water flow off around 11 o'clock. Fishing would be good once the water subsided to normal levels, but that would take, oh, say an hour or so. Now, Reese, a 23-year-old who grew up in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Tacoa River flowing through his veins, guided Hamilton and me. Brad and I split up since we were the most experienced fishermen of the group. He and Josh fished from the other Brad's boat. Now, the other Brad was a retired and had been guiding for 20 years on these waters. Both of these men knew fly fishing, and better yet, both of these men knew these waters very well. After about 30 minutes, I'd had two strikes and no snags. (laughs) Hamilton, being his first time on the fly, had two snags and no strikes. But both of our luck was about to change. Reese anchored the drift boat on a nice run that had a boulder, uh, about three feet in diameter, at the head, and then it dropped into a deep hole before leveling out to the rest of the river. A perfect, perfect place for a rainbow to ambush an unsuspecting bug floating by. We were fishing a triple fly dry dropper rig with a chubby Chernobyl as the dry fly, which doubled as the indicator. From there, a patch rubber legs dangled halfway between the, the dry and the sulfur soft hackle nymph. We just, just a touch of flash to catch their attention. It was one of Reese's homemade flies that he had tied the night before. I'd probably fished that hole ten or so times while we were anchored. Then I noticed I was missing the deepest part of the hole casting too far downstream. I adjusted my aim just above the boulder and cast where the dropper would fall right into the hole as the current pulled it downstream. Reese was untying a small knot in Hamilton's leader when my dry fly disappeared. Oh, I set the hook and the line tightened. My first thought was the Pat's rubber legs had, or the nymph rather, uh, dropped and had snagged the boulder. It felt as... It felt this was the case since it didn't budge when I stripped in some line. To my surprise, it was not the boulder, and it was in fact a trout. My persistence had paid off. I knew, I knew it was a big one when the drag zinged and any line I'd accumulated in the boat disappeared. <laughs> Reese noticed it too and stopped mending Hamilton's line. Now, 
I'd caught my fair share of trout smaller than 15 inches, and I knew I could force I could force them into the boat with ease. My only other experience with a large trout was on the Flathead River in Montana, when a hungry rainbow with a head the size of my fist rose and devoured my dry fly eight feet from the boat. It retreated. It retreated upstream, and I horsed it too hard and broke it off in an instant. Oh, it was a feeling I'd never forget. That trout would have been well over 20 inches, but that's how it is with fly fishing. The biggest ones always get away. Or so I thought. With Reese at the helm of the oars, the anchor up, and my line taut, the fight was on. Unlike the guide in Montana, who, who was excellent other than coaching a greenhorn fly fisherman with respect to fighting large trout, Reese coached me with every breath. Okay, strip the line. Okay, now l- let him run. Reel it. Let him let him run. Strip the line. Reel it. Let him run. Turn your rod upstream. All right, let him run. Reel it. Turn him downstream. Reel it. All the while, he was rowing upstream and down, dodging oblivious kayakers who were getting too close and putting me in the best position to land this monster whom we'd yet to see. In my mind... The way it was staying so close to the bottom, this was a big old brown trout. It was clear I was wrong when it first came into view under the boat in the crystal mountain water. I saw it snaking upstream with the nymph hooked firmly in its lip. A normal-sized trout will bend once. There were at least three bends in this giant rainbow's body sway. From my vantage point above the water, he looked to be two feet long. A trophy, for sure. The only part left was the hardest, to land him in the boat. Now, Reese knew we had worn it down when it rolled at my command. Turning it upstream and down, it tired it out enough to net it, but the weight of this trout was stressing the four-pound test line. I knew Reese. I knew Reese wanted this fish in the boat just as much as I did when he anchored down and leapt over the side with the net in his hand. A splash and a gasp, and then he coached me to roll it once more. I rolled it, and a frigid Reese scooped the flopping rainbow into the net with several inches. The net, it was, it was, it was too small. Losing my composure, I let out a victory yell that echoed through the river. Brad and Josh's boat was within earshot, and they shook a congratulatory fist in my direction. Now, yelling while fishing is usually considered undignified and inappropriate, but I've caught enough fish to know when it's okay to bend the rules a bit, and this fish warranted such a response. We had done it. We landed that fish, and it was a complete team effort. Hamilton kept the trout wet in the rubber net while Reese paddled us to the nearby shade along the bank. After all the high-fiving and photo-taking, it was determined that it was a 22-inch rainbow with the most vibrant green color, rosy gills, and a watermelon stripe down its side. My biggest trout to date, by far. That was the first trout of the day, and Reese insisted that the fishing was only going to get better. He was right. By the time we ate lunch, about two hours into the trip, Hamilton was no longer fighting snags, but fighting trout instead. He had landed several nice wild rainbows, and he looked like an an experienced angler. Since that trip to North Georgia, Hamilton has become quite the fly fisherman who can frequently be found exploring the creeks around his home in East Tennessee with a fly rod in hand. 
Reese told us that he was skipping as many holes uh, for trout as, as we were fishing, but that was his strategy. We quickly learned that when Reese said to fish a hole, we'd better hold on because a trout was going to strike. More times than not, when we fished a hole, we got a strike. And when we didn't get a strike, it was, it was most likely our fault. By the end of the day, we'd put close to 30 rainbows in the boat, not counting the four chubs and two miniature shiners that I bragged about having enough skill to land, as small as they were. The other boat was successful too. Although Josh wasn't as lucky, Brad had a fantastic day. He caught over 20, including his first ever brown trout. And some of the rainbows he landed were the most colorful I'd ever seen in person. Being the fine photographer he is, Brad captured their beauty with the digital SLR camera he'd inherited from his late father. Many of the trout Brad caught were over 15 inches and fat. It was a fine day. A fine day on the water, indeed. Owl in Winnie the Pooh once said, Without a monster or two, it's hardly a quest. Merely a gaggle of friends wandering about. The four of us had been on a quest, but to this point there had not been any monsters. Not until Sunday when the river became my monster. We checked out of the cabin and we attacked the river once more. The water was down and we had easy access to wade the water from the bank. We'd fished the 200 or so yards of the river to no avail. Now there was a good looking run downstream, but the water was too high to reach. However, I thought I would see how close I could get. <laughs> it was then when things got hairy. It was then when I realized how close was too close. I was walking and fishing downstream when the rocks uh, in the river below gave way. Before I knew it, I was up to the top of my chest waders. The felt bottom of my wading boots had broken loose, causing me to slip. The cold water hit my chest and I gasped for air. My vest was submerged, my phone included. Hopping on my upstream leg, I, I, felt, uh, I felt myself slipping into the clutches of the rushing water. Lower and lower, I sank into the side. Of, the inside of my waders began taking on water. I knew, I knew I was in danger and the frigid water breached my waders and anchored my neoprene socks. I could no longer stand idly and assume things would work out okay on their own. I had to fight. The water rushed over me. I gasped as the coldness soaked my torso. I felt helpless, but I refused to get swept away. I refused to quit. I hopped and I kicked, and I kicked and I paddled my arms and rod and reel to reach the bank. I would not give up. I would not die. Not that day. I kicked and hoffed and kicked and kicked. The water was my foe and this was the tidal bout. As I gazed upstream, my fishing partners were oblivious to my struggle. They didn't know the fight was happening under the surface because I had not cried for help. Crying for help doesn't come natural for men. And... And many men never know when their closest friends are when their closest friends are struggling. Like most men, I did not cry for help. And I would not. It would not be necessary this time. The kicking and methodical flailing lasted while time seemed to stand still. 
but I felt the bank slowly sloping upwards and I knew I was safe. When I reached the silty banks of the river's bend, I took a deep breath and exhaled. Looking back, it was much more serious than I'd let on, but there was no way I was going to let the river win. No way I was giving up. Quit was a four-letter word, and no, no part of my DNA. I stripped down to my wet clothes beneath my waders, and the only word that came to mind was exhilarating. There's something about near-death experiences that make you feel stronger when you survive. I was stronger, but this experience with the river made me wiser. Even the deadliest monsters can disguise themselves as quiet rivers. These monsters, they need to be respected, but, but not feared. If I still feared monsters, I'd be no braver than my three-year-old daughter who thinks they live under her bed. The key is not to avoid monsters the rest of my life, but, but to never give up fighting them when the time arises. As the group of us uh, reassembled along the riverbank, I, I told them what had happened to me. We made light of it, but it was fairly serious, and we all knew it. Just as we were bidding Hamilton farewell, the, the piercing cackle of two kingfishers flying overhead caught my attention. The kingfisher had independently become Brad's and my favorite bird. We felt that there was a Sort of the same persistence in us that exists in this beautiful bird. In some way, we too were kingfishers. The late Eugene Peterson tells a story of watching a kingfisher from his home in Montana. The kingfisher, the king of fishers, would dive repeatedly without, without catching a fish. But over and over again, dozens of times over, the bird plunged himself into the depths of the into the depths of the river, returning void of fish. However, he never gave up. Eventually he, he rose victorious from the depths with that prized fish. What made this bird the king of fishers was not that he avoided failure, but that he was the most persistent of fishers in the face. A failure. As Brad and I watched the rare sight of two kingfishers arrow themselves and plunge headfirst into the rushing waters, it was somehow symbolic of both of our journey. Though we have faced monsters of many kinds, sometimes disguised as a as failure, sometimes disguised as loss, and other times disguised as a rushing river. By the grace of God, we pray not to avoid these monsters, but to have the persistence never, never, ever give up fighting them. I heard back from the agent on that Monday. It was what I'd feared. He passed on my novel and said it was nearly impossible to get new novelists published these days. He may be right, and that may be true. But somewhere inside of me, beneath the frustration and wounded pride, I laughed after reading his reply and thought about the persistence of that kingfisher. Impossible? We shall see. The fight is on. Listen, we know there are lots of podcasts you can be listening to, and we thank you so much for taking time to listen to The Storied Outdoors. 
If you've enjoyed this story and our conversations, please take some time to leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcasting platform. As always, we hope these stories encourage you, encourage you to write your own stories and share your own adventures in the storied outdoors.